Well, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, this is the word of God over us. You have heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser put you, uh, hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Uh, not too long ago, I had some people post some, uh, some really hurtful and untrue things about me on Facebook. And don't worry, it wasn't any, anyone that goes to Frontline. Uh, but one of the things that happened, and by the way, I don't hardly ever get on the dumpster fire that is Facebook, uh, but a friend texted me and just kind of gave me a heads up. And so I, I logged on and against my better judgment, the curiosity was getting to me. I read what was being said about me and what was being said uh, just in some of the comments and all the, all the things. And, and let, me just, let me just be honest, like I felt a lot of emotions, but I tried to brush it off. I think to the people I was around, I was like, oh, you know, haters are going to hate, I think is what I said. But in my heart, what was happening is I felt this mixture of, of uh, sadness and frustration, and ultimately I felt some intense anger. And here's, here's how I think of myself. I don't typically think of myself as an angry person. Uh, those of you that, that know me and know me well, I don't hardly ever blow up. I've got a really, really long fuse. Uh, there have been a few times in my life where I have kind of exploded in anger, uh, but I don't really blow up very often. So I tend to think of myself as someone who doesn't struggle with anger, but here's how my anger manifests itself. I actually am an angry person, and the anger in my chest comes out where I can very easily emotionally disconnect myself from from anyone who has hurt me. If you have wronged me or hurt me or said something about me that's offended me, then I can very easily just kind of cut myself off. And what I said in my heart, on the outside, it was like, oh, you know, haters are gonna hate. It's not that big of a deal. But on the inside, what I was saying is, man, those, I didn't even like those people anyway. And those people are dead to me. Like, I don't even care if I see them again. That's what came out in my heart. Have you had an experience like that? Or maybe somebody has said something to you or about you and you got wind of it and it hurt you and it made you mad. Maybe you blow up in your anger or maybe you're more subtle like I am and your anger comes out where you just kind of emotionally disconnect from those people that have hurt you. Can you relate? When was the last time that you got angry with someone else in your life? Today we're talking about the teachings of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is the most significant set of teachings that Jesus has in the New Testament that anybody has ever heard that shaped the way that the early church lived more than any other teaching. This shaped the way they saw themselves in the world and they, this shaped their understanding of the heart of God for how to live out the kingdom realities. And last week, as we were unpacking the sermon, what we looked at was this weird statement that Jesus made where he said, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And what that means is that he, he lived perfectly underneath the law's requirements in our place. He brought the fullness of the law about, but it also means that Jesus now unveils for us the deeper meaning 
of the law of God. And at the very end of that teaching, he said this really weird, strange, bizarre statement in Matthew 520. He said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were like the religious leaders of Jesus's day. And what he's saying is, unless you are, unless you are right living, actually your devotion to me exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is giving us a list of, of things that we have to do before we earn his mercy and before we earn his grace. This is not what Jesus is teaching. He's not saying, hey, if you want to be loved by me, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be uh, adopted into the family, of God, then you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and stop doing these things. That's not at all the teaching. What Jesus is saying, though, is that when the grace of God shows up in your life, when you start to encounter the love of Jesus, when you become a person who chooses to follow Jesus and his way of life, it actually begins to change you. And righteousness is no longer this thing that you begrudgingly try to do, but Jesus begins to transform you from the inside out, and he shows you how to live as a human fully submitted to him. And one of the things that he's going to talk about is how we actually follow Jesus in regards to our anger versus our love. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I found the teaching of Jesus around the way of anger versus the way of love, I found it really, really convicting and also really, really liberating. So let's jump in. Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, it's interesting what Jesus is doing in this text. He's actually quoting from one of the Ten Commandments, directly from Exodus 20, verse 13. It's the sixth commandment where it says, thou shalt not murder. That's what Jesus is, is, is quoting in this text. And he said, yeah, you've heard that that was said, that you shouldn't kill people. And I just want to pause there. And, and can we just agree as a group of people, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that not murdering people is probably a good plan? right? Can we just nod your head if you agree? We're really worried if you're not nodding your head right now. This is something we just, yeah, let's not kill people. Uh, Don't murder. That seems like a logical law that we should have in place. And here's the reality. The, The religious leaders in Jesus' day had become really, really good at not murdering people. And they had felt good about themselves for not murdering people. So they were patting themselves on the back. We don't kill anybody. So we're doing good. He told us not to kill anybody. We're not killing anybody. Thumbs up for us. We're doing great. Our righteousness is on point. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Like I meant don't kill people, but I also meant don't get angry because anger is the thing that leads to killing people, right? I I, I meant more than that. And if if you're a parent or if if you've you've done this as, as a child, if you had brothers and sisters, it's like when I tell my oldest daughter, Evie, it's like, hey, do not touch your sister. And I look in the rear view mirror and she's like, you know, half an inch from her face. I'm not touching her. I'm not touching her. I'm not. And it's like, that's not what I meant. I, I meant don't touch her, but I also meant way more than don't touch her. I meant whatever you're doing, right? That don't do any of that, right? So don't touch her and don't even do whatever you're doing. Just leave her alone. Jesus is saying, I, I, I meant like, don't, you know, I'm not murdering. I'm not murdering. That's not what I meant. Don't do that. But it's deeper than that. Jesus is revealing the deeper reality of this law. He's like, don't even get angry with a brother or a sister. We need to define that term really loosely. Brother or sister isn't technical. It's just like any human being. Don't get angry. 
Now, it's interesting, this word for anger, there are actually two words that are used in the New Testament for anger. There's the, the, the Greek word thumos, which is describing the type of anger that quickly rises up in your chest and then dies down real quickly. This is what we might call a blow-up, right? Thumos, it's a blow-up of anger where it's almost out of your control, it just rises up and then it dies down real quickly. The, the other word that's used for anger in the New Testament is orge. And orge basically is this des- describing the anger that comes about by nursing a wound. It's something that you carry deep in your chest, you nurse the wound, you, you, you have this ongoing, continued state of resentment towards someone else because of something that they said or did. This is the word that's used in Matthew 5, this word orge. So here, this is helpful. Jesus isn't describing, uh, hey, don't ever have this blow up of anger where anger rises up quickly and dies down quickly. Because have you noticed when that happens, sometimes that's even outside of your control. Not all the time. And you should be on guard against that. But there are times where something will happen and anger rises up real quick and then it really quickly dies down. It's almost out of your control. That's not what Jesus is describing here. What he's talking about is that anger that you carry in your chest and you nurse the wound and you kind of think about it, you mull it over and you, 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 you replay the scenario again and again and over time it creates the sense of low-grade anger and bitterness. That's what Jesus is describing. Now it is possible to be angry in a righteous way. It is possible to be angry and not be sinful. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And that's actually one of the ways you know it's righteous anger is that it's not something that lasts for a long time, right? It's something that you can, you can it comes up and you're able to deal with it in an appropriate, non-sinful way. Anger can, can be an emotionally healthy response to sin, evil, and injustices, right? So when you see racism in our world, an emotionally healthy response is anger, When you see sex trafficking in our world, an emotionally healthy response is anger. But can we be honest for just a minute? That type of anger, that righteous anger that's due to sin and injustice, that's rarely the type of anger that you and I carry in our chest on a day-to-day basis. Most of the anger that we have is what the Bible would call unrighteous anger. We're rarely getting angry over something in the world that we should be getting angry over, and we're very frequently getting angry over things in the world that everybody else is getting angry over too. Let me give you a few reasons why we get angry. Why is it that this anger starts to rise up in our chest and we begin to carry it around? Well, here's the first one, wounded pride. Wounded pride. Somebody says something uh, that kind of mars your character. They do something that hurts your feelings or make you feel small. They do anything to, uh, to kind of wound your pride. And one of the responses is anger. This is what happened to me with this Facebook post is it wounded my pride and my response was anger. Now, here's something that's really interesting. We're generally really okay with uh, saying things about ourselves, admitting flaws, weaknesses, and even outright sins as long as we are the ones that are saying those things. But if anybody else were to say those things about us, oh man, I, I have issues with that. John Stott says it this way. He says, I myself am quite happy to recite the confession in church and call myself a, quote, miserable sinner. It causes me no great problem. I can take it in my stride. But let somebody else come up to me after church and call me a miserable sinner, and I want to punch him on the nose. In other words, I'm not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me 
what I have just acknowledged before God that I am. There is a basic hypocrisy here. So think about the things we just said together, like we're miserable sinners and we've done this and we've done that and we're prideful and we love money too much and we don't love our enemies and, and we're okay with saying all of that. But if someone else in this room or someone else in your circle says that about you, oh man, then I'm gonna emotionally cut you off and I'm gonna be angry. Wounded pride is one of the reasons why we get angry. Another one is unfulfilled expectations. All of us carry around in our back pocket a Polaroid of what we want our marriage to be like, our singleness to be like, our, our relationships, a vacation, a day off, a job, a situation, whatever it might be. And when we arrive to that thing or we get that thing, we pull out our Polaroid. And if it doesn't meet all of the expectations that we, are the, we either articulated or maybe we didn't even articulate, then it creates anger, unfulfilled expectations. Another one is fear and the loss of control. Maybe for you, it's when you fear the loss of a position or your reputation, or a job, or a relationship, or, you, or control in general, and it makes you freak out a little bit, and that fear produces anger. Maybe for us, it's this last one. It's very simply just not getting our way. Not getting our way. I have an 18-month-old little boy, and boys are so different to me than girls. Like, my girls, when they get mad, they just cry. You know, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with you. I'll just hold you and tell you everything's going to be okay. And hopefully I'm not emotionally scarring you right now. But with my son, when he gets angry, like if I take away something that he wants, he hulks out and he just, his face turns red, 18 months old. He doesn't see me do this. He just, and then he'll throw stuff and destroy stuff. And I'm like, I get you right now, man. I understand exactly how you feel. He's just like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta push someone over. I gotta hit something, you know? And, and, and that's what he does. And I, I just, I, I've watched him and it's been so funny because it's like, even though I'm not 18 months old anymore, I still throw temper tantrums. Mine are just more sophisticated, right? I've just found more appropriate ways. So I'll withhold affection or I'll give you the silent treatment or I'll become passive aggressive or we as a culture, we subtweet, or we go on a Facebook post rant, or whatever it might be. Like, if we don't get our way, if someone takes something from us, or, you know, we just, our will is thwarted in any way, the response that we have is anger. Now, here's what's interesting. What Jesus is doing is he's condemning anger, and there's many reasons why we get angry, but what I want you to see in Matthew 5 is the types of expressions of anger that Jesus is condemning. So there are three of them. Look at this, Matthew 5, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Three expressions of anger that Jesus is here condemning. Here's the first one. He's condemning simmering anger. That phrase, whoever is or gay with his brother, whoever is, is angry with his brother, whoever has this, this simmering resentment and frustration, you might not call it anger, maybe you call it frustration, the simmering anger, Jesus is condemning that anger. The second type of anger is this flippant dismissal. It's whoever insults his brother or sister. Literally in Greek, it says, whoever says raka to someone. Now, chances are you're not running around going, Raka, you know, on the highway when people, uh, you know, cut you off or whatever because you don't know what Raka means. But in Greek, it's, it's literally a four-letter word and it means something like empty-headed or what we might translate as idiot. And it's where you just, you have this flippant dismissal of another person made in the image of God. And then the third 
type of expression of anger he condemns is verbal contempt. He says, whoever says, you fool. Literally in Greek, it's uh, moros, which is where we get the word moron. This is when your anger, it's bubbling up so much that it comes out of your chest into your mouth and you point it at somebody else and you say something hurtful or offensive. So he's talking about simmering anger that you carry around towards someone in your life, a coworker, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, uh, a, a roommate, a spouse, whatever. The simmering anger. He's condemning this flippant dismissal where you go, oh, forget those people. Those people are dead to me. I don't care if I ever see those people again. And he's condemning this verbal contempt where whether to them or about them to someone else, you actually allow this to spew out of you in some really unhelpful ways. You, you begin to say things about them negatively. Verbal contempt. Now, here's what's bizarre. If I could just like inject everybody right now with truth serum, most of us, maybe all of us, would say very honestly, yeah, I do these things all the time and I don't think it's that big of a deal. You and I do at least one or all three of these all the time. In fact, if you think about the last few weeks of your life, you have probably done, I know I have, done some of these exact things that Jesus is here condemning. It just doesn't feel like that big of a deal to go, that idiot. It doesn't feel like that big of a deal to, to, to say something about another person, whether it's to them or about them behind their back. It just doesn't feel like that big of a deal to have anger kind of boiling, simmering beneath the surface and your soul carrying it around. You're not lashing out. You're not hurting anybody. It's just there in you. It's not hurting anybody. It's not that big of a deal. Why do we feel that way? Well, here's why I think we feel that way. It's because you and I live in a culture of outrage. I read a New York, uh, I read a Time Magazine article rather titled America's Anger is out of control. And it was just pointing out this reality. This was written right after the election. And it was just watching the world and watching all the tension and watching the anger and the outrage. And it was just making the comment that for all the talk of love that we have as a culture, for all the talk of acceptance and all this, that our culture is the most outraged, angry culture that's ever existed. We freak out. We blow up. We're outraged about everything. In fact, the article pointed out how you can find newspaper articles about vegans being outraged, about dancers being outraged, gardeners outraged, fishermen outraged, and here's my personal favorite, knitters outraged. Yes, you heard that right, knitters. By the way, this is the official motion for knitting, right? The knitters got outraged just because they wanted to, to, to have something called Knitters Olympics, which is just strange anyway. And the, the actual Olympics were like, no, you can't use the word Olympics in your title. And they, they got outraged over that. Because even if you're a knitter, you live in a culture of contempt and a culture of outrage where that's just the normal baseline emotion is just to freak out when something happens that you don't like. But how does Jesus feel about our anger? Well, look at Matthew 5 and verse 21. He says, For you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother, Raka, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, or you moron, will be liable to the hell of fire. I want you to let this sit in for just a minute. The teaching of Jesus says, that your anger towards a brother or a sister, your simmering bitterness, your verbal contempt, your flippant dismissal of another image bearer is on par with murder. 
Now we could just almost pause there, couldn't we, and just stop and do some confessing and repenting. Jesus is saying, the way I feel about murder, that's the way I feel about it when you flippantly dismiss another human. That's how I feel about it when you have anger towards a brother or a sister. He sees it on par with murder. In fact, look at what he says. He, he mentions this idea of uh, judgment. He says, literally, like, you'll be liable to judgment. And then he talks about being liable to the council. That, that word is, is the Sanhedrin, which was like a group of uh, religious uh, judges at the time. And he's saying, literally, like, your anger, it's enough to bring you to court over. And then he talks about this scary phrase. He says, the hell of fire. What is that all about? Well, I don't have time to go into detail, but chances are most of us, the way we think of hell isn't the way that the New Testament talked about hell. We tend to be more influenced by Dante's Inferno, you know, seeing this underground torture chamber rather than how the New Testament talks about hell. It talks about it two ways. Like, it's both this present reality that you can unleash now, you can unleash hell now, and it's also this eternal place of judgment later. So it's something that you can release now with your words or your actions, but it's also a place, a place of judgment. And what Jesus is saying is your anger, it's, it's actually really brilliant and helpful, even though it's super convicting, saying your anger, it is unleashing hell and it's enough to send you there. It's enough to send you there. So l- look at this, the stages of anger. I found, again, the teachings of Jesus are convicting but they're insightful and he's cutting to the heart and he's, he's diagnosing the human condition in ways that we don't even realize. So let me just give you some stages of our anger. Here's the first one. We get angry for whatever reason. Somebody wounds our pride. We don't get our way. Something happens and it causes anger. And then here's the next stage. We begin to nurse the wound and we let it fester. So we begin to replay that scenario over and over. We go to bed and we think about it. We wake up and man, you know, I was okay yesterday, but that really was a big deal that they did that. I can't believe they said that. I can't believe that really happened. And, and all of a sudden, that wound begins to fester. And then stage three is we play the self-righteous victim. What happens here is because we live in a victim culture where everybody's a victim, we've learned really, really well how to minimize our mistakes, minimize the, the part that we had to play in creating the problem. We look at the other person and we maximize their weaknesses and minimize their strengths. We think about ourselves, we maximize our, our strengths, we minimize our sins and our weaknesses. And we look at that person and we begin to play the, the self-righteous victim. How could they do that to me? And then the next stage is we give our hearts over to contempt. You walk in the room and that person's in the room and you tense up. That person walks in the room, you tense up. You want to avoid them. When you think about them, you get angry. They come up in conversation and you find yourself just just have feeling stuff in your chest. We give our hearts over to contempt and then the next stage is it leaks out of our mouth in verbal violence. This is when it boils up so much that it comes into our mouth and we, we begin to have just verbal violence towards other people because of what they've done. And then finally, we unleash hell on earth. And where does this stop? Domestic violence, abuse, murder, You see, this is why anger is such a big deal to Jesus. He's saying, I don't want you to be angry. I I gave you the command not to murder. I don't even want you to be angry with your brother or sister because this little seed of anger, it grows into something really destructive where you end up unleashing hell on yourself and those around you and it ultimately can lead to murder. It's that big of a deal. This is why over and over in the New Testament, you and I are called as followers of Jesus to put away our anger. Anger is seen as inconsistent 
with the Christian way of life. Like, let me just read some of these to you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked before you knew Jesus, before he rescued you, before he encountered you with his love and mercy. You too once walked when you were living in them. But now, now that you've encountered his mercy, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The anger that we carry in our chest, Jesus is pleading with us. He's looking at us in the eyes and he's saying, I told you not to kill. I meant that. But what I really meant was don't even have anger towards a brother or a sister. Don't even go there. Don't have simmering anger. Don't have flippant dismissal. Don't have verbal contempt. If that's in you, you've got to put it away because it's inconsistent with my way of life. And this has led me all week. I don't know if it's led you here in this sermon yet, but this has led me all week to to ask this question. Then what do we do with our anger? What do we do with it? Because there are times where you can't help the fact that someone does something and it produces anger What do we do with the anger in our chest? This is where Jesus' teaching is so helpful. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. It's going to give us two different scenarios, two different ways of dealing with our anger. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Second scenario. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is giving us two different examples of how to deal with our anger. The second one I'm not going to spend too much time on. Basically he's envisioning if you have two people that get into an argument or a fight, a disagreement, and it leads to them uh, getting into a lawsuit with each other. What Jesus is saying is, hey, sometimes it's actually better for you and better on a whole to just get rid of your anger, to, to actually just lose your anger than to go to court and then maybe even have the judge uh, say that, yeah, you are in the wrong and you've got to pay this person back. Jesus is saying sometimes it's best, even if you're in the right, to not allow your anger to fester to the point that it, it follows itself to this place. Sometimes it's better just to get rid of it. And then the first scenario I think is the most helpful. And it's almost hilarious what Jesus is saying. He's saying, imagine if a person is, is, is taking an offering or a sacrifice and they're going to the altar to offer that to God. And when they get there, they remember that they have something against their brother. They should leave it there and come back. Now, here's what's fascinating. The only altar in Jesus' culture and day that you could offer an animal on and, and, and make that sacrifice on was in Jerusalem, which was 
80 miles away from where Jesus is teaching the sermon in Galilee. So think about what Jesus is saying. He's with people in Galilee, and he's like, hey, imagine for just a minute that, you, you know, you, you take your annual week-long trip to get there. It's 80 miles, so it's almost from here to Tulsa, right? You take your week-long trip to the altar with your animal and you get all the way to Jerusalem and then you remember, oh man, I've got something against my brother or sister. Maybe it's I've wronged them or they've wronged me or whatever. What he says is leave your animal there, you know, leave the, whatever you call the sheep or the goat, just leave it there and then walk all the way back to Galilee. Get right with your brother and sister. Once you've got that fixed up, then go all the way back to Jerusalem and then make your sacrifice. In other words, what he's saying is Because of his love for you, God the Father doesn't want to talk with you about whatever you want to talk about until you deal with this thing in your life. This is really, really incredible. And what Jesus is saying, if you boil it all down, is this. You have anger, then the way you deal with that is by going to the person that you have anger with and reconciling with love. You talk about it with them. You ask for forgiveness for things you need to. You, you, you own what you need to own. And either way, no matter what it costs you, no matter how much time it takes, no matter how difficult, no matter how insane it feels, even if it feels as insane as traveling 80 miles away, it doesn't matter how insane it feels, quickly deal with your anger by going to the person and getting reconciled to them in love. How could we do that? How could we learn to be people that we, we, we have anger in our hearts and we deal quickly with it? Well, here's how. The only way to be people that walk in reconciling love is to experience the reconciling love of Jesus for us. Here's the crazy thing about Jesus. He's not asking us to do anything in this text that he was not willing to do himself. In fact, if you think about the life of Jesus, here's what it is. He doesn't just travel 80 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem to make her sacrifice. What Jesus does is he literally leaves heaven and comes to this earth to reconcile with you and I, even though he was the offended party, even though he was in the right, even though he did no wrong, we were the ones that had wronged him. We were the ones that had produced righteous anger in him. And in his love and in his mercy, what Jesus does is he travels from heaven to earth and he gets right with us before he makes his sacrifice on a cross where he absorbs the pain of our sin and, and, and the justice that we deserved and the anger that he had towards us. He, he just absorbed all of that so that he could release us in love and reconcile us back to himself. When you taste the reconciling love of Jesus on a cross, when you taste the mercy of that God who would do anything to come find you, even though he was the offended party, who did everything, including giving his life to put away his anger, when you taste that type of love, you cannot be a person who refuses to reconcile with someone else. You just can't. It's inconsistent. You can't be someone who has experienced the the love as an enemy of God when he made you a friend and then still have enemies. You can't be someone who has been made an adopted member of the family of God and then cut off someone else for doing way less to you than what you have done to Jesus. You just can't do that. Because it's not possible to experience that type of love and continue to be a person that harbors anger and simmering resentment towards another brother or a sister. This is why Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love 
for one another. Not by your theology, not by your profession. They're gonna know that you belong to me by the way that you walk in the way of love, not the way of anger. This is what Jesus is teaching. By the way, this was so impactful to the early church that the early church became a culture of love rather than a culture of outrage. Some of you are hearing this and it feels like pie in the sky. Like, oh, Jesus must be off his rocker. There's no way we could ever live into this. And I just want you, want you to realize that the early church was so moved by the reconciling love and grace of Jesus that they actually did not become a culture of outrage. They became a culture of love. In fact, the Didache is a, a treatise that was written in probably around the second century. And it was this treatise that helped early churches know how to function and how to govern and how to do Sunday services on the whole nine yards. And in that Didache, in that writing, there's, there's a section on there that talks about this idea of reconciling love. Listen to it. It says, and on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks. First confessing your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. And let no one having a dispute with a fellow join your assembly until they have been reconciled that your sacrifice may not be defiled. They took the teachings of Jesus so seriously that they believed that if you harbored anger towards a brother or a sister, if you had a flippant dismissal of someone in your life, if you had a this person is dead to me list, Jesus, or the early church believed that God w- w- would not hear your prayers, that he wanted to deal with that before he wanted to listen to what you had to say. They believed that it would hinder your relationship with God. So they instituted this thing called the, the, this practice of the kiss of peace. Now, don't freak out. We're not gonna institute this at Frontline. We have way too many like creepy dudes in our church to, to do this, right? But here's what would happen. And what we call the welcome time, where uh, we say, you know, turn, give somebody a hug or a high five. They had the kiss of peace time. And the kiss of peace was before the sermon, before communion, before any of the prayers that were prayed. And what would happen is it was really, really long, like several minutes long, as long as it needed to be. And you would go to someone else and you would give them the kiss of peace. Now, in Roman culture, they gave the kiss of peace too, but it was the wealthy people that would kiss other wealthy people. Poor people would kiss poor people. You would never have a wealthy person kissing a poor person. A poor person was never allowed to kiss a wealthy person because it was all about status and and, and where you are in society. And the early church blew that paradigm up. They were so moved by the reconciling love of God that you had wealthy people coming to poor slave people, kissing them with a kiss of peace. They were saying, you and me, we're equals in Jesus. You and me, there's nothing that stands between us, not even my anger that I've carried in my chest, I'm not even gonna allow that to stand between us. So if you would go to a brother and a sister and before the kiss of peace, if you realized you had anger in your heart towards them, you would talk with them. You would confess that. You would deal with that. You would get reconciled. You would, you would ask for forgiveness and that relationship would be mended and then you would give each other the kiss of peace. And only then would you take communion and only then would you pray the prayers and only then would you sing the songs because that's what they believed was the way that God wanted to keep this church as salt and light in the world. In fact, this was so moving, and I'll end with this, that there is a story of a woman named Perpetua and another woman named Felicitas. This happened in Carthage in March of 203 AD. And what happened in Carthage was there was a large persecution that broke out among the church, and a group of Christians were arrested. And among those were two women, Perpetua, who was this really wealthy woman. She had status in the community. She was really well-known. And then this slave woman named Felicitas. 
Felicitas was pregnant, like had been pregnant for a long time, was getting ready to give birth. And they, these women, along with some other Christians, were arrested and they were set to be released inside of the games where they would have gladiators and wild bulls released and then they, they would be put to death inside of the games with a group of Romans, just a group of Roman people watching as they died. Now, what was so fascinating about the story, it was so crazy, is that the early church had a practice where they would take you through what was called a catechesis for three years before you could get baptized. For three years, you had to go through this training and this catechesis, and then you would get baptized. And so the early church, what was, what was hard about this is these people that had been arrested had not yet finished their catechesis. So the pastor of this church with this arrested Christians, he did not himself get arrested, but he goes to the jail and he turns himself in. He gives himself, he's like, hey, I'm a Christian. You should arrest me too. And so then he enters into the prison and he finishes out the catechesis process several days before they're set to be released in the games. Three days before they're released, Felicitas gives birth to her baby. And then the day of the games arrived and the night before they were baptized, they were brought out into the games. They were stripped naked and a wild bull, the story says, as many people were watching, one of the wild bulls came and they rammed and gorged Felicitas and Perpetua. Felicitas literally had milk leaking from her breast because she was postpartum. These women who had been stripped naked, totally ashamed, been hit with these bulls, Perpetua walks up to Felicitas. She, she picks her up off the ground. She gives her the kiss of peace. She was saying to the Roman culture, we're equals. We're, we're sisters. We've been reconciled by the love of God. There's nothing that's gonna stand between us. And then they stood together arm in arm. The early, the, those Christians gathered together in a huddle. And then the gladiators began to kill them all. And that day you had Roman soldiers that went away totally frustrated and appalled. How dare they give the kiss of peace to an inferior? But you had tons of other people that were knocking on the door of the church saying, who are you? And who is this Jesus that you love? Who is this Jesus that you worship? Because they had a culture of love, not a culture of outrage. Friends, what Jesus is inviting us into as a church is to put away our anger and to embrace love reconciling love for one another. It doesn't matter who has hurt you. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter if you were in the right and they were in the wrong. Jesus does not want you harboring bitterness, simmering anger towards anyone, flippant dismissal towards anyone. So in light of that, I want to invite you to stand with me. Here's a few things that I want you to know. The first is this, that your anger and my anger has a direct effect on our relationship to God. It has a direct effect. Jesus himself is saying, I don't want to talk about this until you deal with that. Frederick Bruner says, the Lord does not want to talk with a disciple who does not want to talk with another person. Maybe there's some spiritual dryness in your life as a follower of Jesus. Maybe there's a sense that you are praying and your prayers are hitting a brass ceiling. Maybe you've got some addictive, sinful patterns that you can't seem to overcome. There could be a lot of reasons for that. So hear me, there might be a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons could be that you're harboring anger and bitterness and resentment towards someone else in your life. Jesus wants to talk with you about that today. 
Not because he hates you, because he loves you. He loves all of you. And anger has this way of destroying us from the inside out and destroying those that we love. So your relationship with the Lord and your relationship to people in your life, there's a direct connection there. Here's the second thing. I really want to invite you today, with God's help, to put away your anger. I want to invite you today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to put away your anger. We're going to close in a different way than we normally do. Instead of coming to communion, bread and wine, this is the body of Jesus that was broken for us on a cross, the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on a cross. This is a sign of his reconciling love for you and I. Before you come and take this sign of the reconciling love of Jesus for you, if you have anger in your heart, if you have simmering bitterness in your heart towards another person, I want to invite you to deal with that before you come and receive the bread and before you receive the wine. Now listen, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Don't come and receive the bread and the wine. Jesus has actually done everything, everything to reconcile you to himself. So all you have to do is as you are, come to Jesus today. He's ready to love and receive you as you are. Come and receive Jesus. We're gonna have prayers on the screen that you can pray. But if you're a follower of Jesus, hear me clearly. It is not helpful for you to come and receive the sign of the reconciling love of Jesus for you if in your heart of hearts you are unwilling to reconcile and, and put away your anger towards another brother or another sister. Maybe it was a mom. Maybe it was a dad. Maybe it was a sibling, a friend, a roommate, a coworker, a child. I don't know who it is in your life, but has someone wronged you or have you, have you carried anger in your heart for someone? Have you written them off? Have you emotionally disconnected? Have you said some things to them or about them without them hearing? Have you done some things or said some things that you need to actually pursue grace and reconciliation in? Don't come and receive the bread. Don't come and receive the wine until you deal with that. And I'm fully aware that, listen, those people may not even be in this room. So maybe what you need to do is not come and grab communion today. Maybe what you need to do is as soon as I send you out, you need to get in your car and drive and go talk to somebody. Maybe you need to get on the phone and call someone. And I realize maybe you haven't talked in years. That's okay. Maybe this is the anger so big and the hurt is so bad that you don't feel like in a moment's time you can just deal with this. You need a day, you need a couple days to deal with this and to go to that person and get reconciled. If that's the case, then here's what I want to tell you. We're gonna post my email up here so that you can email me. I would invite you to not come and receive communion today But if you email me a time and I'll give you space to deal with that anger and talk to that person, I will personally meet you wherever I need to meet you. I'll drive to you or I'll meet you at the church and I will serve you communion. I will serve you the bread and I will serve you the wine, whether it's on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm out of town Thursday, so I'll make sure somebody else is here to do that for me. And I'm I'm not even joking, I'm dead serious. If you need to go later tonight and then call me or email us, I'll meet you somewhere. I'll meet you tomorrow. Don't come and receive communion. Don't receive... The, the, the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus broken without dealing with this. He loves you enough to talk with you about this part of your heart. Open this part of your heart up today. Open it up today.